the journal feed. My name is Nick Zelt, and this is the only place to be spoon-fed the latest and greatest of emergency medicine. Our team combs through the literature to find the best articles so that you don't have to, and then provides expert summaries no bigger than a spoonful so that you can keep up with the ever-changing landscape of acute care medicine. Now, we also offer CME credits for all the hard work that you do keeping up with science. You can head to our website at uh, journalfeed.org for all the details on that. This is the audio version of the past week's summaries, which this week were brought to you by the impressive Megan Breed and Clay Smith. So to start us off, the first article was Surviving Sepsis Campaign, Guidelines on the Management of Critically Ill Adults with Coronavirus Disease 2019, out of the Journal for Critical Care Medicine. Everyone is seeking for the best information that they can find right now on the best ways to treat their COVID patients. Honestly, usually most trials take longer than COVID has even existed for, though. To try and help out with this, many are doing all that they can to collect what information we do have to apply it where we can. The same goes for the folks in the Surviving Sepsis Campaign, who put together a panel of 36 experts from 12 countries to review the literature on MERS, SARS, and sepsis, to put together recommendations of what we do know, although indirect evidence, to guide people as best as they can. Altogether, they were able to put out 54 statements to help support healthcare workers caring for critically ill COVID patients. We'll cover the most relevant points here. For the most part, it's good to keep in mind that evidence-based knowledge that we already have for caring for patients with ARDS applies to our COVID patients. Now, according to the recommendations, during resuscitation, it's best to use dynamic parameters, such as skin temperature, capillary refill, lactate, to guide conservative administration of balanced crystalloids for a target mean arterial pressure of 60 to 65 millimeters of mercury. Norepinephrine is going to be the preferred vasoactive agent here. However, dibutamine may be necessary if there is severe cardiac dysfunction. Supplemental oxygen is needed for anybody satting less than 90%, but make sure not to strive for a target of any saturation above 96%. Of course, we know that hyperoxia can be damaging. Ventilation is a precious resource right now, so of course you're going to want to consider doing high-flow nasal cannula as a trial before moving to that step. If intubation is needed, go for lung protective strategies to avoid vent-induced lung injuries. Preferably, if plateau pressure remains less than 30 centimeters of water, you're going to want to use a high PEEP, something above 10 centimeters of water, to help improve oxygenation. For refractory hypoxemia, consider prone positioning, neuromuscular blocking, or if you've got it, even ECMO. No surprise here, but COVID pharmacology is still a black box for everyone due to the lack of clinical trials. But in general, antimicrobials and corticosteroids should be considered. The panel from this study actually recommended against routine administration of convalescent plasma or lapinavir or ritonavir and felt that there wasn't enough evidence to evaluate the use of any other antivirals, really. So, in a spoonful, if you're still a bit lost or you'd like to see what a group of experts has to say, you can give this paper a look. The second article for this week was titled Using Emergency Physicians' Abilities to Predict Patient Admission to Decrease Admission Delay Time out of the Journal of Emergency Medicine. In some hospital systems, if an emergency physician wants to admit a patient, they have to get a consultant to see the patient first, have the consultant agree that admission is warranted, and only then can the decision be made to admit that patient. But what if there was a better way? 
maybe a faster way. What if the emergency physician got to decide who was going to be admitted, start that process, and then the consultant can come see that patient? This was a single-center prospective study done in the great white north of North America, that's Canada, over five months. This was a convenient study excluding any grave or high-acuity cases where admission was obvious, and the ER doctors were asked what disposition they would have just prior to the consultant seeing the patient. They calculated that if the ER doctor made that decision then, that it would have saved 922 patient hours spent in the ER over the five months of the study. On top of it, ER doctors were actually right most of the time. They correctly predicted admissions in 92.8% of patients. Sensitivity and specificity were 90.5 and 84.2 respectively. Also, the positive predictive value was 92.8 and the negative predictive value was 79.6. The worst was predicting psychiatric admissions, which dragged down the averages a bit. The best positive predictive value was for other medical specialties besides internal medicine. All disposition decisions had strong agreement between the emergency physicians and the consultants with a kappa of 0.885. In a spoonful, having emergency physicians determine the need for admission instead of getting approval from a consultant first appears to be quite reliable and could significantly reduce emergency department wait times and even crowding. The third article for this week was titled Combined Treatment with Hydrocortisone, Vitamin C, and Thiamine for Sepsis and Septic Shock, HYVCTTSSS, a randomized controlled clinical trial out of the journal CHEST. Hey everyone, another sepsis cocktail. There have been a few attempts at this already, but at some point we might just want to consider mixing everybody their own drinks. The Citrus Ali trial found no difference in SOFA scores or inflammatory markers with high-dose vitamin C, but did see a small decrease in 28-day mortality as a secondary outcome. The Vitamins trial was also negative, but how's this study going to pan out? This was an 80-person single-blinded RCT in patients with sepsis or septic shock, comparing hydrocortisone, vitamin C, and thiamine versus placebo being normal saline. There was no difference in the primary outcome of 28-day mortality, but the SOFA score at 72 hours was lower in the cocktail group. That being said, the study was terminated early for failure to show benefit. 13 of the patients in the treatment trial developed hypernatremia against three patients in the control arm, and this is what led to the study termination. Interestingly, the group with the sepsis diagnosis within 48 hours versus septic shock had a lower mortality. So maybe it just needs to be given very early. I'm not sure. In a spoonful, the cocktail of hydrocortisone, thiamine, and vitamin C for sepsis patients did not improve 28-day mortality. And onto the fourth article for this week, titled An Asynchronous Curriculum for Teaching Practical Interpretation Skills of Clinical Images to Residents in Emergency Medicine out of the Journal of Emergency Medicine. Let's be honest, finding time to learn is always hard. When doing adult learning, being very busy, it pays to be able to study whenever it's convenient for you. There is loads of software and programs out there that could potentially help with this, but the authors of this study ended up choosing Slack as a place to interact with colleagues and discuss cases. But how effective would something like this be to learn a visually rich topic like emergency radiology? For this study, two senior emergency medicine residents put together case vignettes and their corresponding key radiographs to allow for asynchronous learning of imaging pearls over Slack. 
The emergency medicine residents who ended up using these cases were surveyed before and after the intervention and appear to have significantly higher confidence in interpreting radiographs after participating. After nine months, 100% of the participants, that was 26 residents out of the program's 36, found the program beneficial and had improved their confidence. Slack is good for this application because it's free, it's by invitation only, many companies use this service, and it's generally considered more secure than social media, so responses and discussions should be able to stay private. Granted from this study, resident confidence is kind of a weak outcome measure, but let's look at it more as a jumping off point for future studies. And now with this published proof that at least some benefit of it is possible, if you were interested in setting up a similar program, it might be easier for you to do that with some evidence to cite. So in a spoonful, the use of Slack by residents to complete and discuss cases was actually able to increase their confidence in interpreting radiographs. All right, the fifth and final article for this week, Inadvertent Tissue Adhesion, Tarsorophy of the Eyelid, a review and explanatory trial of removal methods of histoacryl out of the Journal of Emergency Medicine. Everyone's worst nightmare, trying to glue a simple, small laceration on someone's face, doing them a favor by avoiding sutures, and then you glued their eye shut. That's right, you actually glued their eye shut. Glue can sometimes flow where you don't want it to, and this is pretty much the worst case scenario to glue someone's eye shut, so you should be prepared for it. These authors reviewed the literature and trialed 24 compounds on glued pigskins to see what was most effective for removing histoacryl tissue adhesive. Soaking, not rubbing, a wound with dexamethasone, neomycin, and polymyxin B eye drops was the most effective at opening wound edges at two hours. This mixture is called Maxitrol in the US and Polydexa in Singapore. For all the other compounds tested, including petroleum jelly, KY jelly, artificial tears, and other antibiotics, they all failed. So in a spoonful, the fastest way tested to dissolve histoacryl glue in the event of someone's eye getting glued shut is soaking the eye in dexamethasone, neomycin, polymyxin B eye drops for two hours. So quick review, what did we learn today? We learned that the Surviving Sepsis campaign has your back again with a long list of recommendations from a panel of experts. Next, ER doctors do a good job at predicting who should be admitting. If your hospital doesn't let them make that decision, then maybe they should. Could reduce wait times and crowding. After that was another cocktail for sepsis, failing to perform, unfortunately. Hydrocortisone, thiamine, and vitamin C did not improve 28-day mortality. Next, looking for a new and easy way to run cases and discussions with your team? Maybe Slack could be your solution. And finally, if you glued someone's eye shut, you'd probably want to fix that as quickly as possible. Here's how. Soak the eye in dexamethasone, neomycin, polymyxin B eye drops for two hours, and that should get you the best results. All right, so links to all the articles summarized this week can be found at journalfeed.org, where if you haven't already, you can subscribe to our newsletter and get daily spoon feeds through your email. And of course, if you'd like credit for all the work that you do with us, you can head to our website and check out our offer for CME credits as well. Our goal here is to provide better patient care through spoon feeding. And so we're helping you keep up with the latest research, one spoonful at a time. Thank you.